You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Okay, well, we all worry about our health. I mean, I weigh myself every day and I try and avoid those deep fat fried foods, even though I really do love them. It's easy, though, to become hyper vigilant about cause and effect. Then again, on the other hand, maybe this is just reasonable caution on my part. Right. It's hard to tell. You want a healthy diet, for example, but is red wine good for you or is it bad? I I can't remember. And, and how much time should I spend on the treadmill to stave off dementia? It's confusing. Well, right. I mean, this pain in my side, is that appendicitis or is it just a pulled muscle from my last time at that gym? Or is it your co-host <laughs> that you work with? Oh, could be that too. I mean, we've all been there, but there are some health worries that may be no more than just unnecessary preoccupation or are just due to stress. And some symptoms may have really surprising origins. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. This is our monthly look at critical thinking, skeptic check on big picture science. Coming up, an update on the studies looking at the possible link between cell phones and cancer and a strange set of physical symptoms descends on a high school in Leroy, New York. Plus, the ultimate diet and full body cleanse. Can breatharians really survive for weeks for years on just light and air? It's all coming up on Skeptic Check, Mysterious Illness. Okay, your BFF is calling. Do you pick up? For some, doing so feels like a game of Russian roulette. How many cell phone subscribers are there now? The world total hit 6 billion in 2012, and there are more than 280 million in the U.S. alone, which means essentially one cell phone for everybody. This is a rapidly growing technology, and it works at radio frequencies. The transmitters in these devices put some of that radio energy into your head, and that fact has people worried about the possible health effects. Not so worried that most of them put down their phones, mind you. But should they? There are anecdotal stories of one person's brain cancer or neck cancer being linked to cell phone use. But the scientific studies so far either do not find a causal link or find minimal risk associated with cell phone use. Well, we've been following this debate on Skeptic Check. You'll find our programs, Cell Phone Danger and Mind Your Body, in our archives. It's there that physicist Richard Muller described the difference between ionizing radiation like, say, from a dental x-ray machine, and the lower-energy non-ionizing radiation that cell phones emit. And even though it shares the term radiation, and I think that can cause fright in some people, they can't even knock an electron off an atom. All they can do is shake it a little bit, and that gives us what we know as heat. So the worst a cell phone could do to you, according to Richard Muller, is make your head feel a little warm. Still, there have been many studies on cell phone use and cancer. A summary, the major interphone study concluded that there was no causal link between cell phone use and cancer or minimal risk for a particular kind of cancer for those who engage in prolonged daily use of phones. The World Health Organization study concluded in 2011 that phones were possibly carcinogenic to humans. In the same year, an 18-year Danish study found no link between cell phone use and cancer. This was a follow-up to an earlier Danish study that concluded the same. Also in 2011, a study by the Swiss Tropical and Public Health Institute that included a potentially more vulnerable group, children and adolescents. It concluded that there was no causal relationship between brain cancer and cell phone use, but one environmental health group says the Swiss study wrongly interpreted their data. So perhaps that one is inconclusive for now. 2012, another Scandinavian study. I don't know what it is, Seth, about the Scandinavians. but Lots there are... of cell phone use up there, actually. 
It's, it's because it's dark a lot of the year. <laughs> okay. A study from Norway, the country's second. The Norwegian Institute of Public Health has found no scientific evidence that low-level electromagnetic field exposure from mobile phones and other transmitting devices causes adverse health effects. And those effects would include cancer, reduced male fertility, endocrine, and immune system disorders. In short, the low-level electromagnetic radiation fields, the RF fields from the transmitters in these devices, are simply too low in both power and frequency to cause any damage, they found. They're, they're 50 times below the level that causes heating of tissue or stimulation of nerves. But that hasn't ameliorated public concern. Congressman Dennis Kucinich of Ohio has introduced H.R. 6358, the Cell Phone Right to Know Act. The bill calls for a comprehensive research program to determine whether exposure to electromagnetic fields from mobile devices can make people sick. It also calls for labels on phones that would state how much radiation is coming from your device. Congressman Kucinich, the many studies on cell phones so far haven't found a definitive link between cell phones and cancer. But your cell phone right to know bill calls for further study. Why are you asking for that? Well, if you look at the interphone study, you have to go a little bit deeper into the data because when you break it down, you're seeing that people who are using their cell phones typically only 30 minutes per day or more were found to have a 40% increased risk of a type of brain cancer called glioma. And then you get the World Health Organization just finished an assessment about links between exposure to radiation from cell phones and health problems, saying there was enough evidence that it was possibly carcinogenic to humans. I mean, this is very clear uh, just on on the base of that, that it's time to examine, label, and communicate these adverse human biological effects dealing with cell phones. So the bill calls for the labeling of the cell phones. What would that require of the cell phone manufacturers? You know, essentially you're talking about something that would uh, have a very simple label. They would have three numbers. The emissions of the phone, the legal limit called the maximum exposure level, which considers technological feasibility as well as health concerns, and the maximum exposure level goal, which considers only what would be required to protect people's health. Well, as a consumer, suppose I go to a cell phone store, I'm buying a new phone, a smartphone, whatever it is, something that has a transmitter in it, because that's the thing that might be dangerous. Right, of course. And this bill is passed, say, so, so now I see this label on it, and it says the SAR, which I think is just the specific absorbed radiation. That's the amount of radiation per pound, per kilogram, whatever it is, that might be absorbed by the body. And, and, you know, on one phone it says 1.6 watts, on another phone it says 1.3 watts, and maybe I think, uh, well, I'll, I'll buy the 1.3 watt. That sounds a little less dangerous. Is that going to help me? Uh, there's a couple things that have to come before that. First of all, I want to say that the SAR, the specific absorption rate, is based on studies that are decades old, out of date. It's based on acute exposures, not long-term exposures. We have to make sure that the SAR is updated. Then you get to this. Here's, here's something that most people aren't aware of. Most of these limits have been based on people holding a phone five-eighths of an inch away from their head. Now, nobody really, you know, as a practical matter, holds the cell phone away like that. I mean, the, the exposure increases the closer it is to the head. Most people hold cell phones right up to their ear. And so if you look at the instructions manual, uh, you'll see that in order to keep your radiation levels below the limit, you have to hold the phone five-eighths of an inch away from your head. That's the case of the iPhone. So that's a loophole which allows higher exposures to go to market. My bill bans the practice of keeping the phone away from uh, the mannequin head when it's tested. Would you say that you expect, Congressman, that there would be some effectiveness to this bill? I mean, presumably you do. But I'm thinking back to the days when they would label cigarette packs. I don't know if they still do this, but they would say 1.6 milligrams of tar or so many milligrams of nicotine on the pack. So, you know, this flood of numbers depending on the product. But I honestly think that, you know, the only effective thing would be to put cigarettes are dangerous for you. And, you know, that might be effective. But these numbers, would they actually change behavior in a way that would improve the health of Americans? Well, they'd have to coming with the product an explanation of what the numbers mean. First of all, you have to get people to understand that any long-term exposure does carry with it certain health risks. You know, if you look at the Interphone study, the World Health Organization study, the phones are being made with higher and higher emissions. So once you get the understanding that that's happening already, then you go to tell people, look, even before you look at a label, minimize your exposure. Shorter calls, use an earpiece, talk on a speakerphone, don't carry your phone in your pocket or your hip, don't sleep near your phone when it's on, don't give your kid a cell phone unless it's completely necessary. You know, wait for a call to connect before putting it to your ear because exposure is high when the phone's working to establish a connection. So, you know, 
that's one. Then you go to what's at the point of sale. And at the point of sale, that's when people have to be given information. You're right. You could have so much technical information, wouldn't, people wouldn't necessarily get it. But the simple practice of labeling would help to alert the public that there are certain adverse human biological effects associated with exposure to electromagnetic fields from cell phones and other wireless devices. This is as serious a health issue as cigarettes were in another generation and continue now. Consumers deserve to know now. They shouldn't have to wait. Cigarettes, as best as radiation, all share the same status for several years before policy finally kicked in. That status is known as there's no proven link between cancer and cigarettes. Yeah, right. And during that time, you had millions of people die. Well, the science is being decided. So people can do some things right now to protect themselves. But ultimately, I'd like to see the science on this updated labels and give consumers a chance not just to know but to be better educated as to what's happening with the uh, radiation that comes out of cell phones. Congressman Kucinich, thank you so much for talking with me. Nice talking to you. Thank you so much. Bye now. Bye. Dennis Kucinich is a Democratic congressman from Ohio. Okay, while the issue is not settled for everyone, it is for Joshua Muscat. The professor of public health sciences at Penn State Hershey College of Medicine is an epidemiologist whose primary interest is in the cause and prevention of human cancer. His summary of the recent Norwegian study. Well, this is what's called a, a prospective study. That is, they follow population over time, look at the incidence rates of uh, cancer in cell phone users and non-cell phone users. And what they found is consistent with some of their previous reports that there didn't appear to be any increased rates of cancer in the cell phone user group. Well, this is, you know, just the latest. And, and as you say, a very long string of studies. You know, are any of these pointing to some substantial risk or, for that matter, any risk? from using cell phones? The vast majority of the studies that have been done to date are predominantly negative. Now, there have been a number of studies, and the nature of these studies is that when they're conducted, people are often interested in various subgroups. So, for instance, you know, are the, are the risks increase for people who use them on the same side of the head where they hold the phone. And so what happens during these studies is that lots of results are generated, and occasionally you will get a positive finding. Often that's not confirmed, but you do get these uh, occasional positive findings. People tend to pick up on positive findings more often than negative findings, and because you have occasional positive findings, it kind of drives the industry. It kind of drives the perception that more studies need to be conducted. This sounds very reminiscent of the scare about 10 years ago that, you know, uh, just the alternating current power distribution system in this country, you know, power lines are, are just the, the, the wire connecting the wall outlet to your steam iron, that all these had detrimental health effects. Well, you're exactly right, Seth. And uh, unfortunately, you know, the cell phone issue followed the EMF issue. And, you know, there was about a decade of research conducted on electromagnetic fields from household lines as well as power lines. And basically, you know, the, the vast majority of those findings indicated that these low-frequency fields were not cancer-causing agents. And unfortunately, we didn't really learn from that historical example. Well, uh, you know, I, I would be the first to admit that cell phones are dangerous and probably have killed thousands of people. But that's because people are making phone calls when they're driving. Now, what, what sort of mechanism, you know, by the transmitter in the cell phone itself could possibly cause cancer? Well, we don't know of any, and certainly there have, there's no theoretical mechanism by which it could cause cancer, and there's very little experimental data to indicate that cell phones can cause DNA damage. So there have been studies that have looked at the effects of cell phones on DNA, the effects of cell phones on chromosomes, and most of those studies are negative. But, you know, what happens is that when there is a positive study that's reported, those are the stories that are paid attention to. Those are the study results that are picked up by advocates who feel that cell phones are dangerous. And those are the ones that often drive the agenda. And unfortunately, you know, science is not conducted in a vacuum. There's always experimental error. And so we'll never reach a point that's going to satisfy everybody. You know, the, the vast majority of studies are negative, certainly not 100% of them. And while we can continue to do studies in the future, I don't think we'll ever reach a point where some people will be 100% assured that uh, the cell phones don't cause cancer. Could it be that there really is some long-term effect that we're not seeing because people have only had cell phones for a decade or two that, you know, maybe over the course of uh, 30 or 40 years of cell phone use, you would see uh, a higher incidence of certain kinds of disease? 
Well, that's the justification that many advocates use that, you know, there's a long latency period for formation of cancer. And so we need to continue to monitor the results of these studies and to continue to follow them up for several years, if not decades. And the only problem with that is that when we look at this latency issue, we're really talking about substances that we truly believe may be cancer-causing agents. We don't believe that with cell phones. And so if one could say, okay, there's a, there's a, long, there's a potentially long latency period for a suspected carcinogen, it would make sense to follow up with many decades of research. But we don't have any reason to believe that cell phones do cause cancer. I mean, there's no more reason to suspect that a, a cell phone causes cancer than any other consumer product. So from that perspective, it doesn't make any sense to follow up with long-term studies. But if longer-term studies help reassure the public, then that's one reason that they should be conducted. Well, what about another approach? Because Congressman Dennis Kucinich has introduced a bill that would require warning labels on cell phones uh, telling you, you know, what the, the flux density is from the radiation they're emitting. Is that useful or is that just some sort of palliative to make people feel better because they bought a phone where the number was a little lower than their neighbor's phone? Right. Well, exactly. And I think you're right. It is a palliative, or perhaps there are some uh, legal reasons why that might be important. But those numbers probably don't mean anything to the vast majority of cell phone users. I mean, those numbers that are talking about recall specific absorption rates, and that's the amount of energy that is deposited into the brain based upon the cell phone output. Cell phones operate on very low power, and the amount of energy that is absorbed by the head is extremely low. It's way below anything that we know that causes DNA damage. So once you're way below that threshold, whatever that number is, you know, whether it's a one or a two, it's still an inconsequential number. So in some ways, it's kind of unfortunate. It's almost deceptive. It's implying that by having a comparative scale that some phones may be more dangerous than others. I think it's a wrong use of those numbers because all those numbers, whatever they might be, are all numbers that are associated with a lack of biological damage. Uh, let me finally ask you this, Joshua. When you use a cell phone, and I assume you do? Yes, I do. Do you use it with a, you know, a headset or a, a Bluetooth or something to, to keep your head away from the actual transmitter? No, I don't. You know, my personal belief, based on the uh, scientific data, is that the emissions from these cell phones are so low that they can't do any biological damage. So I have no personal fear that, you know, that they're causing harm. So I, I just don't see a need for a Bluetooth or an earpiece. And certainly if an individual feels that they're somehow lowering their risk by using those devices, then they should certainly have the freedom of choice and go ahead and use them. But for myself personally, I just don't see that there's any harm associated with using the cell phone right up to your head. Joshua Muscat, thank you so much for talking with me. You're quite welcome. Joshua Muscat is an epidemiologist and professor of public health sciences at Penn State Hershey College of Medicine. Coming up, why the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences is running another cell phone study. And why the onset of a strange suite of symptoms has this sociologist thinking back to Salem, Massachusetts at the end of the 17th century. It started in a group of cheerleaders with these facial tics and the girls had trouble speaking. It's Mysterious Illness on Skeptic Check, our monthly look at critical thinking from big picture science. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. 
Face-Off launches April 9th. Welcome back to Skeptic Check, our monthly look at critical thinking from big picture science. Now, we just heard from epidemiologist Joshua Muscat, who says that no more studies are needed to determine the safety of cell phones. The National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences agrees that studies so far have just not proven a conclusive link between cell phones and cancer, but they think further study is needed. Their National Toxicology Program study, the largest laboratory rodent study to date, is well underway, says toxicologist Michael Wide. While there are a number of studies that have been done both in humans and laboratory animals, and those studies have not demonstrated a conclusive link or causal relationship between cancer and cell phone use, there are some issues with many of the studies, both in animals and humans, that have been conducted, and and there's much debate and uncertainty in the scientific community surrounding those studies. So what questions are you asking that haven't been asked yet? Uh, It's not that we're asking a a different question. It's that the the studies that are out there uh, are insufficient in some way, are limited uh, for the epidemiological studies. There's bias or confounding factors in a lot of those studies that make it difficult or impossible to establish a definitive or causal relationship between exposure and health effects. Uh, Now, you started these studies while these rodents, these rats and mice were in utero. Why? Why so early? Because <laughs> tiny babies don't have cell phones? Uh, no, but uh, one of the reasons, and actually it's the, the rats specifically that we're looking at in utero. Uh, one of the reasons is that, well, obviously a, a fetus can't use a cell phone. Pregnant mothers are using cell phones, and we're all exposed not just to the cell phones, but uh, as the towers become closer to the ground over the, over the last couple of years, uh, they're putting them on top of buildings. There's, there's more exposure not just from cell phones themselves, but also from other sources of radio frequency radiation. But there is a difference between ionizing radiation and the non-ionizing radiation, which is emitted by cell phones, which is the low-frequency radiation that physicists have told us they can't come up with any scenario by which that would disturb a human cell. That's correct. But doctors think there might still be a way in which that would happen? I think we, we don't know. There's plenty of things that we we think we know one day, and then a year or five years later, we we realize that we we didn't know what we thought we knew. Uh, So there's been some suggestions as to mechanism, uh, some oxidative stress, potential processes by which the radiofrequency radiation might cause ill health effects. Uh, As I said, we're just not sure, and so uh, that's one of the reasons that that we're doing these tests how can there be a differing opinion with with different doctors and different professionals who all care about the same outcome? Why is it that one professional would say there have been enough studies and another one would say there have not been enough studies? <laughs> I mean, it's a really interesting question. Um, and I think it really just comes down to scientific opinion. You know, two different people can look, you know, with the same credentials, at the same set of data, and and not necessarily come up with the same exact interpretation. I think in this case, it comes down to primarily the the limitations of these studies. Michael Wide, thank you so much for speaking with us. Well, thank you very much. Dr. Michael Wide is a toxicologist at the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences. We're in the midst of the Mysterious Illness Show here on Skeptic Check. (laughs) And Mysterious really does describe the onset of physical symptoms that recently appeared among some high school girls. It all began in the summer of 2011. Because of his expertise, Robert Bartholomew followed this with great interest. And you had a group of seemingly healthy girls at this small school in western New York in Leroy suddenly getting severe facial tics, shaking, trance-like states. The behavior began with cheerleaders at Leroy's high school and then spread to other girls. In total, 18 young people, many with debilitating Tourette-like symptoms. The symptoms were so bad, they couldn't even complete a single sentence without garbling their speech. And it was a frightening event. 
In western New York, they have a history of toxic chemical dumps, and the obvious cause to the locals was that it was some kind of toxic chemical leaking on the school grounds and causing these students to become ill. But then you have to ask yourself a question. How come it wasn't affecting teachers that had been there even longer and local residents in the community? Why just schoolgirls at this school in Leroy and no one else? The events went viral. Websites, newscasts, Facebook. The girls and their parents were interviewed on programs like The Today Show. Robert Bartholomew followed the events closely a half world away in New Zealand. A very unusual case what happened in Leroy. And that's what makes it so interesting to someone like myself. Robert Bartholomew is a sociologist at Botany College, and his specialty, well, you'll hear that in a moment as he gives his diagnosis of what was going on with these girls. But a hint is found in the title of his book, Outbreak, the Encyclopedia of Extraordinary Social Behavior. Robert, these girls began to manifest this strange behavior ticks, uh, uh, twitching, whatever. Presumably this was noticed at school. I, I assume they did this at home as well. I mean, who was paying attention? Who got alarmed first? Was it the school administration? Were the parents the first to notice? What happened? Oh, the parents and the school, and then the school had the state health department do a series of tests on the girls. Then the state health department came back and they said, look, we're not going to announce for privacy reasons what's wrong with these girls, but we can assure you that it's not serious and it's not an epidemic that you should be concerned with. And that was a huge mistake because then there was a feeling that there was a cover-up by the health department and there was some ominous disease sitting there in the background that they didn't want to panic people about. You suggest that they thought it might be a disease. When I say they, I mean the parents, the teachers, whatever. Uh, were there other possibilities other than some sort of, I don't know, infection? Well, possibility number one that immediately sprang to mind because there have been a history of toxic chemical dumps in western New York and the famous Love Canal, um, that is not that far from Leroy in western New York. So the obvious cause at the beginning, it was thought to have been toxic chemicals. And even Erin Brockovic from the movie fame, she came to Leroy and conducted her own investigation looking for toxic chemicals. So you had two theories here. One was the toxic chemicals that you've just mentioned. The other was the review by the officials who said, look, uh, there's something here, but uh, don't worry about it. But we're not going to tell you what it is out of privacy concerns. And that undoubtedly spawned worries that there was some indeed some sort of viral bacterial, some sort of, you know, uh, 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 physiological reason for all this. So surely this sowed <laughs> tremendous unrest amongst the community there. What was the reaction? It was just pandemonium in the community. Some of the parents of these children hadn't even been told by health authorities what the cause was. And when one of the doctors involved came out and he said he believed he knew what the diagnosis was, I mean, there was absolute pandemonium when that diagnosis came out. I agree with that diagnosis. Well, tell me what his diagnosis was and uh, why you agreed with it. Two words, conversion disorder, a.k.a mass hysteria. And when, when you look at the case, it is a classic case of conversion disorder. Now, people often misunderstand the term. It's a term devised by Freud to describe real symptoms, but the actual illness doesn't exist. We don't fully understand the mechanisms involved, but we know what happens. It's quite common in individuals. A classic case would be a soldier with deep reservations about the morality of killing, whose arm freezes so he can't fire a gun. The term conversion comes from the converting of emotional distress and beliefs into symptoms of illness. Now, conversion disorder is less common when it spreads within groups. And it's the exact same disorder that occurred in 1692 in Salem. It's just in a different form. Uh, most of the symptoms in the victims have now subsided. They started to subside in March, April, May of 2012. And it started to subside directly in proportion to the media coverage of this dying down. 
And the doctors involved there at the Den Institute in Buffalo near Leroy who've been uh, involved with treating most of these girls have noticed that, that there's a direct relation between the mass media reporting dying down and the symptoms dying down. Conversion disorder must be triggered by something. What If you had to describe to me, what was it that set this off, first in one girl and then spreading to the others? What kind of event would have done that? Well, there's no clear trigger in this case. Usually there is. However, I think it's interpersonal conflicts among girls. Now, I'm going to sound sexist here, but as a uh, school teacher in the United States, I've taught in Australia, I've taught in, in New Zealand and a number of Western countries, at least in Western countries, when you get interpersonal conflicts among boys, it tends to be short and sharp. They dust each other off and it's over. With girls, it can typically be very sordid and go on for months or years and build up. That could be one of the factors involved. I should also mention there's two types of mass hysteria. There's the anxiety-based hysteria that's triggered by extreme sudden stress in a close-knit group like in a school setting. It's usually triggered by a bad smell and you get symptoms like dizziness, headaches, fainting and over-breathing. Most of the victims will recover within, say, 24 hours and there's easily a hundred cases like this around the world that happen each year, mostly in Western countries. The second type is what we're talking about here. It's very rare. This is motor-based hysteria, and it affects motor function. What's happening in Leroy is the very rare type that stems from long-term stress that results in disruptions to the nerves and the neurons that send messages to the muscles in the brain. Your body, in a sense, starts to go haywire. You get twitching, shaking, facial tics. The messages get garbled up. Trance states are very common, and that's what you're getting in Leroy. What's very important about this case and why I think it's a big deal, during the 20th century, there were just four known cases in U.S. schools involving this motor hysteria, motor dysfunction, the twitching, the shaking, the altered states. Since 2002, there have already been three outbreaks. There was a school in North Carolina in 2002. And when I looked at that case in the journals... It was spread throughout the school. And then in 2008, I was called in again to give my opinion on a case at William Byrd High School in Virginia. And you had a very similar situation where it was spread throughout the school. It wasn't just a classroom. And I thought to myself at the time, this is strange. I've never seen cases like this before. And then the Leroy case popped up. And what I believe we're on the verge of here is an epidemic of motor hysteria, the likes of which have not been seen in the United States and Western countries for hundreds of years since Salem. And when I contacted the doctors in the Leroy case, an interesting pattern emerged. The internet and social networking appears to be directly responsible for these cases. This is the first disputed case in Leroy during the social networking era where people could view the girls on YouTube, they could receive Twitter updates, they could follow Facebook links. And it, it's a milestone potentially in the history of mass psychogenic illness because for the first time, the primary vector or agent of spread appears to be the internet and new technologies. And that's why when I look back, I said, that's why it's not just a single classroom. It's spread throughout the school. These technologies, the new technologies, have been evolving so rapidly, we haven't had enough time to assess their impact. And I'll tell you this, it's only a matter of time before a major global outbreak of mass hysteria, something like this happens involving entire countries or continents. It is inevitable. It's going to happen. It's only a matter of when it's going to happen. Robert Bartholomew, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. Robert Bartholomew is a sociologist at Botany College in Auckland, New Zealand, and he's the author of Outbreak, the Encyclopedia of Extraordinary Social Behavior. Okay, the idea that a conversion disorder could go global sounds extraordinary. But journalist Gordy Slack, who writes about conversion disorders specifically and neuroscience in general, says these strange physical manifestations of emotional states are more common than most people realize, and a widespread epidemic has already been documented. 
In the early 1960s in India, there was a small village where the teenage girls started to laugh hysterically, and they couldn't control themselves. They were just one girl would start laughing, and then they would, you know, this happens in schools all the time, but these girls could not stop. And it slowly, over weeks and months, moved from that village to neighboring villages and jumped over other villages and spread all around this whole region of India. And for years, there was this pathological laughter where almost all entirely teenage girls just could not stop laughing all day long. It went on for years? Yes, went on for years. Three years, I think. So this went on for years, continual laughter for years? I don't think any individual girl laughed for three years, but the epidemic, uh, as it took its course, it lasted for about three years, yeah. So when Robert Bartholomew talks about the potential for a global conversion disorder that would be transmitted through social media, does that seem outrageous to you? Well, it's kind of an amazing idea. I mean, it's a very frightening and weird idea, but yeah, it actually seems plausible. I mean, you have to remember that the mechanism of conveying this kind of disorder is not a virus. It's not something you need to breathe or imbibe. It's an idea, and it's a way of dealing with stress, and that convey through media as well as anything else. So yeah, you could have global pandemics of conversion disorder, sure. How is the laughing epidemic in India in the 1960s an example of a conversion disorder? It's quite different from that of the girls at the Leroy High School. Well, it is and it isn't. I mean, these girls weren't laughing hysterically with delight. This was pathological laughter. They couldn't stop laughing even though things weren't funny. So it was almost like a kind of a seizure. But they're both conversion disorders. How common are conversion disorders? They're amazingly common. I think we'd all be surprised if we knew. It's hard for doctors to say just how common because you often can't prove something's a, a conversion disorder. But I've talked to physicians who think that as much as a third of common ailments are actually rooted in psychological forces, not physiological ones. That includes things like blindness, paralysis, chronic pain, of course, sleeplessness, all kinds of gastric disorders, things that look like epileptic seizures but are actually rooted in psychology and not neurology. Is that the same thing as saying it's it's all in our minds, some of these ailments? It's just in your head? Not at all. These illnesses are as real as any other kind of illness. It's just that they have psychological roots and not physiological roots. And are the psychological roots always stress? And if so, why aren't we all exhibiting conversion disorders? Most people are stressed out in in one way or another. Well, everybody has a different way of handling stress, and we all convert it into something or other. Some of us convert it into work, and some of us convert it into uh, hand-wringing, and some of us convert it into other more pathological expressions. And why one person expresses or handles or processes their stress that way is a big mystery. I think psychologists believe that the kinds of stresses that get turned into conversion disorders are very, very deep and painful ones, often traumatic assault or, you know, basically intolerable kinds of stresses. Then do you agree with Robert Bartholomew's assessment that the trigger of the stress in Leroy, New York, was interpersonal stress between these girls? Well, I think that was definitely a component because of the contagion aspect. But the first girl who got sick was just dealing with stresses on, I I believe that they were personal stresses of her own. I mean, there may have been a social component there too, but she, she had epilepsy. She was having seizures that, in addition to her epileptic seizures, she was having seizures that were not epileptic. She obviously had a kind of conversion disorder. Why would it catch on to these other girls the way that it did? Well, she was a very influential girl. People admired her, and they were watching her closely. You know, this was her way of dealing with stress. It's unconscious, but it's not like the movement of fashion trends or other kinds of things that we don't realize we're embracing but do. Gordy Slack, thank you so much for speaking to us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Science writer Gordy Slack is our regular go-to source to help us put brain matters in perspective. Next, inhale deeply and skip lunch. That's one group's approach to a 
healthy lifestyle. It's mysterious illness on Skeptic Check, but don't take our word for it. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Well, we've been hearing about some mysterious illnesses on Skeptic Check, but what about the remedies? It's buyer beware when it comes to health remedies, pills, treatments, and so on. But what about breather beware? Hey, Gary. Yeah? All right, are you willing to take a deep breath over there? I, I can do that for you, yeah. How do you feel? You, you feel satisfied? Do you have enough nutrition now to go for the rest of the day? I don't think so. No, that, that was not a nutritious well, well, breath well, of air. Take, take another breath. All right. How about now? Any better? Um, not really much difference. So that didn't kill any hunger pains that you might have? No, I don't think there's enough fat particles in the air here for me to get any nutrition out of it. Okay, mm-hmm. so you would still need to eat at this point, sometime today. Definitely. Wow. Well, that's uh, that may be true for you, but it's not true for everyone, you know. The breatharians. Have you heard of breatharians, yeah. Gary? Okay. Uh, they're a group who claim to forego food and live off nothing but air and light. Now, Gary, would you be helped if you had some light shining on you? I don't know that I would. You mean sunlight? <laughs> yes. I wouldn't mind being outside, sure. Okay. But you'd still probably go to dinner? I will very likely have dinner regardless. All right. The breatharians claim that they can live off of air and light. Now, what's in air, Seth? Well, mostly nitrogen and oxygen, mostly. Okay. <laughs> and uh, what about light? Well, in light, there's light. It's, it's photons. They don't have any mass. Okay. Do they have nutritional value? Well, you know, if they, uh, they can knock uh, electrons around if you're a plant and maybe have you make some food via photosynthesis, they have no nutritional value on their own. Okay. How long do you think you could live off air and light? I think till you died of starvation. I, I don't know. I personally could live for maybe a half a day and uh, maybe between lunch and dinner. That's how long I could live. I mean, some people do fast for a day or two, but Ben Radford, the deputy editor of Skeptical Inquirer Science magazine, covered the story of a man in India who says he's a breatharian and claims not to have eaten in 70 years. Gary, do you think you could live off air and light for 70 years? I mean, if you practiced. If I practiced, yeah, I might be able to do that. Okay. At any rate, this is a dramatic approach to health and wellness and an extraordinary claim, and it is one that people do make because this man is not the only one who claims to practice such dietary abstinence. There are people that call themselves breatharians who claim they need no food to survive, and some of them practice on their own, and others sell their ideas through websites, workshops, and books. Ben, a couple of years ago, you reported on a man in India who claimed he had not had anything to eat since 1940 which at the time you wrote that story, that meant he had gone 70 years without food. Was that really what he was claiming? That was the story. Um, It was pretty remarkable when I first came across it. The the idea that someone hadn't eaten since World War II, I have to be honest, gave some red flags on my end. Yeah, well, well, was there any confirmatory evidence here? Was was there a doctor who stood up or maybe his live-in cook? I guess he didn't have one of those, but a scientist, (laughs) somebody who said, you know, I've never seen him eat. Well, it was an interesting case. Uh, he actually sort of came to light in, in India, and he went to the Sterling Hospital. And at that point, he again, he claimed that he hadn't eaten in, in 70 years. Again, he was, like, I think, 81 at the time, so that means he, he had his last bite, you know, morsel of food back when he was 11. And this, as you can expect, made some international news. And soon he was actually put under some observation because, of course, there were various skeptics, such as myself and others, who said, well, hold on here. And apparently there was some research done, and he was held under observation. There are some question as to just how strict that observation was and how careful it was. But, but, but the, the bottom line, I mean? Well, the, the bottom line is that allegedly he didn't eat for about two weeks. I think 15 days is what it was. 
which even if that's true, I mean, that's still well within the normal range in, in which people can eat. I mean, in general, humans can live without food for between one and two months. So the fact that he didn't eat for two weeks, if indeed that's true, that's still, you know, well within the, the, the normal range. Was this guy particularly thin? He was. He was he, he was quite thin. I mean, it, it's interesting, you know, he, he comes from a tradition of fakirs. And, you know, there's, you know, sort of godmen that wander throughout India doing various magician's tricks and other tricks, uh, walking on coals and all sorts of uh, things like that. And so that's really the tradition that he came out of. All right. But, um, but the fakir, the, the way that word is spelled, it looks like faker. And, of course, that's kind of my first thought here. But <laughs> I, I assume that he, he called himself a breatharian. Yes, I believe so. And, but this is not the only case of people who claim that they've lived without food. No, in fact, the general phenomenon is called inedia, which uh, just means basically not eating. And it actually has, it comes from a couple different traditions. Uh, one of them, you can look at religious fasting, basically. You have fasting in Islam, for example, in Ramadan, Jews with the Jewish tradition. So there's a pretty strong you know, history of that sort of thing, for example, in Roman Catholicism, and stories and legends of saints who, who didn't have to eat for years at a time. So that's sort of one angle to it. The other angle is the more sort of New Agey, if you will, you know, Hindu mysticism-inspired version, which this man, Prajani, came from. And in this belief system, they believe that basically that they can get all the nutrients that they need from the air, uh, from simply breathing deeply. Or in some cases, they believe it's sunlight. The specific claims vary from person to person, tradition to tradition, but typically the claims are that, that you don't need sustenance because you're getting everything you need from the air, from sunlight, from prayer, meditation, things like that. I have to say, Ben, I lived in Los Angeles for a number of years, and I always felt that on smoggy days I could perhaps forego lunch by breathing deeply because there was a lot of stuff <laughs> in the air. I mean, do these people claim to abstain from water as well as food? It depends. Some people make that claim, others don't. Typically what you find is that they will drink a little bit of water just because otherwise their mouths, of course, get very dry. Food and water are two very different things. As I mentioned earlier, I mean, humans can live without actual food for between one and two months, depending on how physically fit they are, you know, how much body mass they have to begin with, and their overall health. But water is a different matter. I mean, people need water, and you, you really can't survive without water for more than a few days. One thing to keep in mind is that if you don't want to eat, then don't eat. <laughs> you, don't, you don't need to announce it to the world. Hey, everyone, I'm not eating. Well, okay, <laughs> good for you. Um, you but, know, but, but this guy didn't. I mean, so he claims. He, he says he went 70 years, and I don't know. I mean, we'd never heard about it in the West. Maybe he was telling his relatives. Uh, well, well, actually, what was interesting was that as I did some more research on it, it turned out that Johnny had actually made the same claim back in 2003. So this wasn't the first time that he'd sort of come on the skeptic's radar. There's a fairly robust skeptical organization in India. And, of course, it's so ripe there because, there, again, there's so many fakirs and godmen there. And so he'd actually come on their radar back in 2003 for the same claim. At that point, he was studied fairly closely. And I think he didn't eat for, I think it was about a week or week and a half as it was. But what was curious was that during that time, he lost weight. And if you think about it, well, hold on here. If, if he actually hadn't eaten since World War II, why would it be that he would lose weight when people are watching him not eat? Yes. Something had changed. <laughs> exactly. There's <laughs> something in the control conditions are a little curious about that. My goodness. Well, now, what was really going on? You, you investigated this a bit. Are, are they sneaking food? Well, in some cases, uh, they are. There have been several examples of Bavarians and people who claim Inedia who are seen, in fact, sneaking food. Uh, you know, their followers bring them little morsels of food. And the other thing to remember is that this is not easy to detect. In principle, it's easy to detect. You just put a person in a room with a camera, and either they eat or they don't eat for the next, you know, days and weeks. In practice, it's a different matter because in practice, of course, you know, they want to go to the bathroom, they want to sleep, and they want some privacy. They may have, you know, friends or family members. It's really, really difficult in practice to watch a person 24 hours a day continuously. And the other thing to remember is that, you know, it just takes a second to palm a bite of food in your mouth. I mean, if they just happen to turn away from the camera for literally a second or two, they can put something in their mouth that will sustain them, not very well, but well enough to keep them going. And so again, if the camera misses that one or two seconds out of the entire day, then, you know, there it goes. It sounds almost like a, an illusionist's trick if they're doing that. Uh, 
I'm told that the founder of this movement, Ellen Greve, or Jas Muheen, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly, but I think that's what she calls herself, claims that she lived for years without nourishment, although she admitted to having mouthfuls of food for taste every once in a <laughs> <Yes>. while. Uh, <laughs> yeah. how, how does she justify that for taste? I mean, just, you know, the, the sort of the... I know, ethereal experience of the food? Yeah, you would think. I mean, uh, what you have to understand is that in these cases, they're not thinking about this from a skeptic's point of view, from a critical thinking point of view. They're approaching this from a spiritual point of view and, and a mystical point of view. So breatharianism in these cases, it's more about a larger, more complex spiritual belief system. It's not just not eating. I mean, that's the most obvious part of it because <laughs> it's something we all do more or less throughout the day. And the fact that these people aren't doing that is remarkable. But it's actually part of a much larger, complex system of beliefs. And so to them, it's almost like, well, I don't really have to prove anything to you, but okay, if it'll make the news and if they like the attention, then they'll go to a news agency and, and tell people. Uh, have any of the Breatharians approached the United Nations and, and, and maybe offered to help out with the UN World Food Program? Because, you know, maybe this would be something helpful if you could, if you could teach people how to do this. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, to my mind, one of the basic questions that you have to ask when you're examining these sorts of claim is, what's the bottom line? You know, where the rubber hits the road, is this real and, and what are the implications if it is? And if these people genuinely can live for weeks, months, 70 years, for example, without eating, this is interesting. This is important. This is important to know for medical purposes, helping starving people. We would need to reevaluate our understanding of physics and biology if, if this is true. Well, finally, Ben, you know, is there any consequence to this? I mean, to me, it sort of sounds like the claims of people who say they can fly or whatever. And, you know, you don't believe them, but they think they do and whatever, but, you know, it doesn't really affect anything. But what about the fact that this might have some influence, for example, on people who are, you know, adopting uh, fad diets or something like that, where they think, you know, it, look, these people can live without eating anything, so this fad diet can't be harmful for me. I mean, is there any real negative consequence? Well, that, that, that's an excellent question. I mean, certainly there have been negative consequences for individuals who have who've tried this practice, again, including death, uh, kidney failure and other problems like that. So, so for the individuals, there certainly is. And I think you, it's, it's, it's fair to make the argument that, um, that there are larger implications. You know, for example, maybe people who are predisposed to anorexia or people who are, you know, trying hard to diet or whatever else, and they may see cases like this and say, well, hey, this, this guy – you know, these people claim to not eat, and maybe I'm fine with that. Now, again, you don't want to go overboard. I mean, I, I don't seriously think that most sane people would, would take this person's claim that he hasn't eaten since 1940 <laughs> as, as a realistic ideal to aspire to. But, but you never know. Yeah. That guy's missed the entire fast food revolution. Yeah, he's missing out. <laughs> ben Radford, thanks so much for talking with me. Thanks, Seth. Ben Radford is deputy editor of Skeptical Inquirer Science Magazine. Thanks to our production staff who are not ill, but they are mysterious. Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Jay Weiler. Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to Skeptic Check, Mysterious Illness. You can find more Big Picture Science and more Skeptic Check, our monthly look at critical thinking, on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, why not go to Facebook at Big Picture Science and become a fan of the program? You can leave your comments there as well. If you're a podcast listener but prefer over-the-air radio because you like to breathe deep, check out the whatever that means. Check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. Trimberger.org. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. 
Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.